Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Grady Burkett, Portfolio Manager on Diamond Hill's global and international strategies. Grady has been at Diamond Hill since 2014, and prior to joining the firm, he worked at Morningstar in a variety of roles. Grady is joining me on the podcast today to provide some insight into both what has transpired in the international equity markets over the past year and a half, as well as to discuss the international markets and current valuations going forward. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Grady Burton. Grady, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, as we look back at the last year and a half, so much has transpired in the markets and economies around the globe. And as we contemplate the upcoming year and what it might have in store for investors, it'd be helpful to pause and consider where we are today from a valuation perspective and consider that in relation to forward-looking growth. As you've said in the past, your team looks for good businesses that you can understand and that are selling at a discount to your estimate of intrinsic value. Equity markets have been on an upward trajectory really since the global financial crisis of 2008. Last year, we experienced one of the most significant short-term drawdowns in history due to the pandemic. And despite the tragic impact of the disease as well as the economic ramifications, global markets have continued their upward momentum. So uh, I will ask you, what does all of this mean for valuations around the globe? Thanks, Doug. Um, global equity returns have certainly been healthy since the depths of the great financial crisis. And of course, part of those returns are driven by global economic growth and the global growth has powered corporate earnings growth. Dividends have also played a role uh, in investors' total return, but a decent portion of these returns um, was also due to valuation multiple expansion. So investors are generally paying more today for a dollar of earnings than they were uh, 10 years ago. And um, in fact, if we look at EMSCI's all-country world index currently has an earnings multiple of about 19 times on 2021 uh, earnings estimates. And that's compared to about 15 times back in 2010. So clearly multiple expansion has played a big part of total returns over the past decade or so. Now we can decompose the global market multiple into a US market multiple and a multiple on the rest of the world uh, by comparing the S&P 500 index to the MSCI's all-country world index, excluding the U.S., and we just use these as proxies. And um, when we do this, we see that the U.S. market uh, trades at about 21 times earnings, um, while non-U.S. markets in aggregate uh, traded around 15 times earnings. So that's a pretty big premium uh, for U.S. equities as measured by these indexes. Um, now, obviously, these indexes have all kinds of construction rules, and this impacts valuations. And um, our U.S. Uh, team has talked about the significant discount of value stocks relative to growth stocks in the U.S. and also small cap stocks relative to large cap stocks in the U.S. So there are plenty of undervalued businesses in the United States, um, despite this relatively high aggregate market multiple on the S&P 500. Um, but still, when I look at the difference, the spread between non-U.S. and U.S. multiples, um, clearly, the U.S. markets do look pretty cheap relative to U.S. markets. So I do think it's pretty safe to say um, that non-U.S. markets are good places for equity investors to find value right now. What are some of the opportunities that you're finding in the current market environment? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're finding opportunities basically across the board. Um, some, some, some that are on my mind now are regulatory pressures in China 
um, has created extremely wide discounts for the Chinese internet companies. And that's probably the most pronounced opportunity, although it does come with considerable uncertainty. Uh, Tencent is our favorite um, in this area right now because it's so dominant in social media and gaming. Um, the company has a very fast growing cloud business and the management team has a really nice long-term perspective on how they run the business. Um, also, Tencent has investments in over 800 companies around the world. And um, these investments provide a sizable source of enterprise value. And I think this enterprise value is, is being overlooked by the market right now, just from these 800 investments the company's made. So when, I look, when we look at the public equity investments alone, um, these account for 25% of Tencent's current market capital market valuation. And then once we strip this value out, we're left with a core business uh, that's growing revenue in the high teens right now, uh, trading in the low 20s as a, as a multiple of next year's earnings expectations. And of course, the underlying business has substantial operating leverage potential. And then when we look at it from a DCF-based um, valuation, using looking at it from our own intrinsic value um, approach, um, this, this company looks extremely undervalued. The expected returns are very high. And then of course, we haven't even adjusted for 10 cents private market investments. So those could be an additional source of value um, that we're not even accounting for in our valuation of the, of the company. Now, another place we see value is in the video game industry. Uh, it's in a bit of a slump. COVID lockdowns pulled forward some demand from 2020. So revenue has been a little disappointing this year. Also studio productivity was probably negatively impacted by the sudden change to remote work last year. Um, so we're seeing a lot of game release dates being pushed back. Uh, so these factors are short-term and uh, solvable in our view, yet they've created some interesting buying opportunities throughout the gaming industry. Right now, our favorite uh, video game manufacturing company is, uh, is Nintendo because it has such a strong portfolio of franchise games. Also, its newest Switch console has become very popular. Um, so Nintendo has an incredibly strong balance sheet, a very good financial model and a management team that, be, that thinks long-term. And here again, uh, Nintendo's net cash balance equates to about 25% of the firm's current market capitalization. So once we strip that cash out, we're looking at a company that is trading at roughly 12 to 13 times current earnings. And it's a business that's generated strong free cash flow uh, over many years. Um, now, when we think about it from an intrinsic value point of view, again, we have very high expected returns for a company that we're confident will be around for a long time. Um, now, Nintendo did face a pretty steep decline in sales after its Wii platform faded, and that's certainly, that's certainly a risk. Um, however, we think the Switch console um, has several good years ahead because it's a very flexibly designed system and the Switch games are very popular right now. We also think that um, Nintendo has a lot of opportunity to increase the monetization of its overall franchise portfolio over time. So that's one, one business we like quite a lot. And then the last area I'm gonna talk about where we're seeing um, some opportunities is just the UK market. And it's throwing out a lot of um, attractive valuations. And this has been true basically since Brexit. Um, so now many of the UK firms that we own are actually global. So there are different drivers behind the discounts. Uh, for example, uh, we own a UK asset management firm um, called Ashmore, and Ashmore primarily manages emerging market uh, bond portfolios. So um, Ashmore is a very respected EM debt manager. It has a very good long-term performance uh, track record across most of its strategies. Um, so it's a, it's a great business. Um, still, emerging markets have been cheap for a while. And then with the possibility of the US Federal Reserve raising interest rates, 
this creates even more uncertainty for emerging market investors. Um, so this uncertainty can have a negative effect on Ashmore's business because investors become less willing to allocate to emerging market fixed income as an asset class. So Ashmore's shares have sold off quite a bit recently and are cur currently trading well below our estimate of the firm's intrinsic value. Again, similar to Nintendo, Ashmore has a substantial net cash balance and a business model that generates a lot of cash. Um, now, there are other offer things we could talk about. I mean, it really is pretty broad based right now. But as far as where we see a lot of value in the portfolio, I'll just leave it these three. Chinese internet, video games, and some companies domiciled in the UK. And, and I know there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding each of the individual businesses I discussed. However, this uncertainty is creating some really compelling discounts for long-term oriented investors. So let's talk a little bit about home bias. Investors tend to think in binary terms about asset allocation. You know, for example, US versus non-US stocks or developed markets versus emerging markets, but today's marketplace isn't that well-defined. You know, what do investors need to keep in mind about revenue and where individual businesses generate their revenue? Yeah, that's right. Um, the underlying economics of a business might have little to, little to do uh, with where a business is domiciled, or in what country its shares are classified by an index provider. Um, so if we go back to Ashmore, it collects fees that are dominated in US dollars for managing emerging market fixed income portfolios for its clients. Um, so the economics of Ashmore's business um, are actually heavily influenced by a broad range of emerging markets um, and the strength of the US dollar and therefore the US economy. However, Ashmore is headquartered in the UK and therefore classified as a UK business. But again, Ashmore's fundamentals aren't really tied to the UK economy. Um, in fact, if the UK economy weakened relative to the United States economy, the pound could depreciate against the US dollar. And this in turn would mean that Ashmore's US dollar denominated fees would translate to more British pounds for the company. And this would partially offset any currency depreciation that resulted from these macro uh, differences. Um, so another good example is, is Roche. I mean, it's domiciled in Switzerland yet roughly half of Roche's uh, revenue comes from North America. And in fact, um, if you look at it, maybe 1% of sales come from Switzerland. And so, you know, you look at in our portfolio, Roche accounts for about two and a half percent of the overall portfolio. And yet the revenue contribution from Switzerland is, is sort of de minimis. So, 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 so when you look at say the international strategy, um, you, we, investors might say, oh, wow, 12% allocated to Switzerland. What's got you so excited about Switzerland? But actually the companies in there are Richemont, Swash, Roche, Novartis, and, and Nestle. And so really it's just that we find very attractive businesses um, in, in, that happen to be domiciled in Switzerland. So the last um, kind of point I wanna make or observation I wanna make on this um, is that, you know, I think US investors uh, who avoid, just avoid investing overseas or are really narrowing their opportunity set for, for, for just no clear reason. Um, you know, I realize that U.S. returns have been much stronger uh, than non-U.S. returns over the past decade, um, but, you know, that hasn't always been the case. And, you know, we'll see how the next 10 years ago, um, but again, the S&P 500 earnings multiple is quite a bit higher uh, than the rest of the world. And so, you know, short, short hurdles are definitely easier to jump. Yeah, and that's interesting because it's it's basically getting to the idea that, yes, there there have been in the past developed and and. Uh, emerging markets, but really it's all kind of blending together. And I think the example of Roche is, is a perfect example of, of what we're talking about uh, in that it's, yes, it's international, but it's really, you know, it's everything. 
And I think that's an important difference to point out when we talk about, you know, looking beyond the U.S. that you're getting everything, but you're still getting some U.S. in there. Absolutely. Multinationals are trying to grow where the population is growing, and that will always be the case. And emerging market populations are generally growing faster than developed market populations. So, Grady, you co-manage the international strategy here at Diamond Hill uh, with the backdrop of rising markets and higher valuations. How does that translate into your portfolio? Are the, are the businesses that you own attractively valued today and going forward? Yeah, as I mentioned, we own quite a few attractively valued businesses in the international strategy. And um, I mentioned some of the cheaper ones um, already, and, and I've also mentioned some of the more controversial holdings already. Um, but even some of our real steady eddy businesses uh, look attractive right now. So Unilever, um, which we've discussed on the podcast before, uh, it's a global consumer packaged goods uh, giant. Um, Rogers Communications, which is a dominant Canadian wireless operator. Uh, Tesco, the UK grocer, um, and then um, Novartis, a, a, another a global pharmaceutical company, they all trade at pretty decent discounts right now. And these businesses are about as uh, defensive as they come. Um, we also own shares of some fantastic businesses. They're definitely more um, economically sensitive. Uh, Samsung is the largest memory manufacturer in the world, and memory is just increasingly important um, um, across a range of, of devices. Um, and Samsung continues to dominate that market and, and should for, for a long time. And then, of course, Walt Disney, which probably needs no introduction. I think we can all feel highly confident that uh, Disney will be doing just well and just fine in 10 years. And, you know, these businesses, they all trade at pretty healthy discounts um, to our estimates of intrinsic value. Now, they are a little bit more economically sensitive. So you could see um, some temporary declines in the share price um, if, if, if global economies were to weaken unexpectedly. At the portfolio level, given where we're at in the economic cycle and where valuations currently stand in the portfolio, um, I'm actually pretty optimistic that the five-year total return will be pretty good. Our valuations, they're pretty you know, normal relative to where they've been in the past. They're not stretched at all in the portfolio. And so obviously, um, we could have an unexpected downturn, and we certainly saw that at COVID. And you know, stock prices can decline fast in a short period of time. Um, but I think that international and equity investors with um, time horizons of at least five years um, should do pretty well uh, from this level. Yeah, and, and I'm a fixed income guy, but I, I understand the basics of equity that when you do have those you know, sudden downturns, you know, that's a buying opportunity. That's a chance to, to get in and, and find companies that are at an even more discounted level to their intrinsic value. Absolutely. When you own a company like Safran that you know will be large or you feel highly confident will be larger in 10 years based on their dominant market position, if the shares sell off, the, the, the logical, rational thing to do is to buy more of those shares at cheaper prices. Grady, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast to discuss the international markets. I think it's been very insightful uh, and I look forward to, to working with you again and, and coming back on the podcast soon. Thanks, I really enjoyed it. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.